So the people you know that have worked out the, the money game generally are focused on productivity and making their talents more productive than anything else. Doing more of what they're really, really good at, doing it for more people, doing it at a better level. And the money is a byproduct of that process. And so their means continue to expand, whereas uh, the opposite of that is the means. It's like, how do I, how do I spend the least I possibly can and how do I make my life even smaller to increase this margin so I can save more? And for us, we don't focus on a savings rate. We focus on funding life goals. And your wants are actually very productive if you think about it, right? Hello and welcome. You're listening to Dash Dot Insider, the auditory epicenter for property investors seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And today's episode is a real treat. I was joined today by Ryan and Terry from the Cashflow Co. And Ostensibly, we were going to talk about money. We started talking about money. We started talking about debt, but somehow ended the conversation in going through black holes. And so to say that this was a journey is probably an understatement, but I've also got to say that it's probably one of the most fun, most interesting conversations that we've had on this podcast in in some time. And if you're interested in thinking about the psychology of transformation, how and how it relates to your financial capabilities to achieve everything you want in life, then this is probably going to be a really great episode for you. I mean, I'd love to give you a kind of bullet bullet point analysis of like, we covered this and we covered that, we covered this, we covered that, but we covered a lot of ground. And I'm personally going to be recommending this episode to lots of family and lots of friends because there's a lot of very valuable content in here uh, that I think will be beneficial to basically anyone at any stage of any journey because we talk about how to effectively get everything you want in life no matter what position you are in and how to, yeah, how to do all of that kind of stuff. So highly recommend you listen to this episode, but then also make sure that you send this to someone because this is truly transformative. And without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it. And I'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to Dash.Insider. Joining me today are Terry and Ryan from the Cashflow Co. Terry, Ryan, how are you? Great, mate. Very well, thank you, man. Well, I'm excited to have you guys on the show. Um, we've our, you know, our two companies have been doing a little bit of work together, which is pretty, pretty fun and pretty nice. I'm really interested to kind of dig into a few topics here today. One of the reasons I'm excited um, to talk to you guys is because on your website, you talk about maximizing your return on life by making smarter decisions with your money, which is something I'm personally passionate about. As you guys are well aware, we're a property-centric company. But actually, it's not about the property. It's about the life. It's like, how do you maximize your capability to live the absolute fullest, best, richest uh, version of your life? So I'm super excited that that is a shared kind of um, sentiment that you guys have as well. But I'd like to start by just going right in there on something. Let's talk about debt. A lot of people think debt... A le- a lot of people think debt's bad. They're like, you know, and just a little funny segue. And I'm not, no, I'm not giving you guys much chance to get a word in edgeways right now, but just bear with me. I was, um, I was trying to use ChatGPT to create a content outline uh, for for something I was working on. It was basically like how to become financially uh, free before 30 was the kind of like thing. And I was just playing around with ChatGPT. The very first point that it came up with was avoid debt, basically. And I was like, wrong. That's not how you do it. I was like, incorrect, ChatGPT. I'm like, more debt. Anyway, so <laughs> I want to talk to you guys about debt. Why is debt Why is debt good and where do you think people go wrong with it? Look, I think it's the probably the biggest inconvenient truth of the finance system and it's one of the biggest backward things you learn and took me a long time to unlearn. 
Um, I think there's two components to it. Ryan and I were talking about this just literally just before we jumped on because uh, we thought it w- might be something that came up. And there's a whole psychology piece and a conditioning piece that you have to unlearn uh, because of, I guess, all the, the money memes that you swim in as you grow up. Um, debt is bad, basically, is reinforced at every single turn. Debt is bad, debt is bad, debt is bad. It just so happens to be, though, that we exist in a debt-based system. And so if you look at the biggest winners, it's the people who know how to wield the weapon of debt. And unfortunately, that is just the way it is. I don't, I don't love that. It's just that is the way the game is played. But I think we, there's two parts of it. Maybe I could talk to the psychology piece of it, Ryan, and, and you might be able to talk to the monetary system part of it. I know for myself, Goose, uh, I definitely grew up with an aversion to debt and a very simplistic kind of notion of, yep, no debt is a good thing and debt is a bad thing and and it's as simple as that. And uh, what I learned going back through, because I guess it started with understanding the monetary system and then understanding the risk of not having debt. And I'm like, but why do I feel like this about debt? Uh, And I I think it's really, really important to go back through and understand where your feelings about these concepts come from. And in doing this, uh, my wife, I'm very, very lucky. My wife is a therapist and she was able to take me through this process. And she got me to a place where I understood that the first time that I'd learned of the concept of debt was when my dad told me how he became a farmer. And he told me that he was 16 years old and he was in high school. And his dad showed up to school, walked into his classroom and said, you're done with school, you're now a farmer. I just took out a million-dollar loan and you've got to work off this portion of it. That's your job. And I forgot about that completely and I never really thought about it until I went back and understood this and I realized that was the first time I thought debt is debt controls you. Debt is a debt's this sort of thing that creates this obligation and, and it's a, it kind of it, it, it walls you in basically. And so that feeling is then reinforced by all the education. So you read all the popular personal finance books, the Dave Ramsey's of the world, the Ramit, same thing. It's always debt is bad, debt is bad, debt is bad. But if you actually continue to educate yourself, what you understand is that if you don't have debt, then you'll play the inflation cost and you cannot save your way to wealth in a wealth in a debt-based system. So maybe, Ryan, that's where you could pick up in terms of just really kind of reframing the risk of not having debt. I'd love, Ryan, if you also talk to, talk to how in how – in inflation and debt actually work positively with each other. That would be a really interesting uh, take on that if, you, if you've got some space on that. For sure. And I think for your listenership too, mate, it's uh, something that will make them feel better about some of those decisions, knowing that, you know, even just looking at this past period of time, right, it's uh, been the biggest winners have been those guys that have uh, bought bigger assets and they could otherwise afford on their own using debt to help them do so. And Terry mentioned there the monetary system, you know, the, the flaw in the monetary system is that the price of things basically have to continue to go up and we've got central banks that make decisions about making sure that that happens and focusing on making that 2 to 3% inflation. And the way that they really make sure that that happens is basically by creating new money at that central bank level or by making the, the cost of debt cheaper so that there's more debt and more credit in the system. And when there's more money going around, chasing the same amount of assets, goods and services, but a lot of assets, uh, the price of those assets go up. And we saw this massively with COVID. You think about the stimulus. And, you know, if we look at the last 10 years, there's been a 90% increase in the amount of money in our system. 
if you look at the money supply. And so that's 90% more money chasing the same properties, for example, and other assets. And so, so much of that value is actually created through that mechanism itself. And if you think about, you know, the actual taking out of debt as an investor, for example, is basically you're saying, let's say I'm saving $100,000 a year. Instead of buying $100,000 this year at today's prices, the property at today's prices, for example, um, and then next year buying $100,000, but the price of that property has gone up by 10%, for example, and you're only buying $90,000 worth at today's prices, and then $80,000 the year after, $70,000 the year after. So future savings buying you less. The using of debt is saying, what if I brought forward, you know, let's say the next 10 years worth of future earned savings? into now and bought that at today's prices. And instead of paying the inflation cost, which is the opportunity cost of buying more uh, or buying less at, at, um, at future prices, buying at today's prices and paying the cost of debt instead. And ultimately, the cost of debt has been less than inflation. If you look at the last 10 years, it's a difference between you know, an average of 9% on inflation versus an average of you know, two and a half to three percent. Sorry, hang on a second. Average of nine percent inflation. What are you talking about? So this is more talking about the money supply. Obviously, the inflation numbers of CPI is a little bit. Oh, okay, which is cool. you're talking about. The, yeah, you, you, okay, yeah, you're talking about monetary inflation versus like CPI inflation. So, pri- yeah, okay, cool. Got, got it. Got it. That's yep. it. That's it. So it's it's more about the price of things going up, and that's kind of encompassing you know price of properties, for example, as part of that. CPI, consumer price index, is more price of you know lettuce and grapes. Um, whereas if you look at the actual increase in the supply of money, it's been a lot greater. Um, and so that's your money in the bank buying you less in the future. And if you've got hundred grand now, it's only buying you ninety thousand dollars worth next year, seventy thousand the year after, and so on. Super interesting, it's super interesting, isn't it? Because it's like so. To simplify this in another way as well, or another kind of reframe for people, if in, if inflation is Let's say inflation is 2% and your interest rate on your mortgage is 5%. What is the inverse what is the inverse relationship between those two? It's like you, you effectively take the 2% off the 5% and then your real interest rate is 3%. And so all of a sudden your cost of capital is directly correlated with the um, with the inflation rate. And so if your interest rate on your property is 5% and the inflation rate is 7%, well, hang on a second, you've got like a negative cost of debt, which actually means you're actually making money on the debt. And so that goes to your point around how inflation changes spending power over time and also how it changes the relationship between the payback of the debt as well. And so that's a big step that people are missing, particularly in the current environment, because like interest rates are up, inflation's up. Oh my God, everything's up and this is bad. It's like, well, net, net, not really. Actually, it's like, Pretty sweet, actually, because realistically, I can get debt at X price and inflation is at X percent, okay? Am I net-net worse off than I was two or three years ago? Maybe not. And just another quick point I want to make on that because of the what you mentioned there was the, the increase in monetary supply versus the total available goods and services essentially forces um, prices up which is really interesting because actually one of the biggest um, challenges that's causing inflation is productivity per capita. And if we can increase productivity, which is output of goods and services per available human being, we can actually then increase the supply side of that equation so that we may increase the monetary side. But if we can increase the supply side of goods and services, then that also means that prices don't necessarily have to go 
as high. And the monetary system, again, is, is built on an increasing um, output. And so if we can kind of catch that up, but that's actually one of the, being the big stagnating issues is that productiv- productivity hasn't been, able to, <laughs> hasn't been able to keep up with money, monetary supply, which I think is really interesting because then obviously we've got AI coming in and that'll be really interesting to see how that could transform the, the productivity side of things to see how that might affect inflation and prices in the future. What do you guys think about that? Mm, I'd, um, I want to go back to that first point you made around like hectic macroeconomics. I love that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, you don't, Ryan. You don't. You don't. don't. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't like macroeconomics, Goose. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, but like coming back to that, that inverse that you did for a start, right? So often people are making those decisions around investing based off the cost of living and you, really inflation gets – yeah, it's used in different contexts for different things. And there's a big difference between the cost of living inflation and uh, inflation from the value of money. And, you know, if we look at COVID, it's a perfect example of that. Cost of living, yes, moved, but the cost of assets massively jumped when there was a massive in, in, influx of new money. Um, and so it's at your way, it's kind of looking at and going, the cost of debt versus the inflation of assets caused by the money supply, um, which is slightly different from the actual cost of living, which most people are comparing those decisions against. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating relationship because as soon as you understand that, you go, well, hang on a second. If the cost of debt is less than the inflation rate of money and assets, then you should always be using debt because any time that you don't, there's an opportunity cost that exists for you. Mm. Yeah. And On the AI point, Goose, um, I just read an article by Mark Andreessen from Andreessen Horowitz. Specific? Did you read this one? No, no, but no, I'm familiar with with Mark Andreessen. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and he talked about AI, and he's like, you know, all the doomsdayers and this sort of thing, and he walked through step by step why he thinks it's going to be the greatest productivity explosion that's ever happened. Um, and he talked through some really important sort of economic concepts. I'm going to butcher them here because it was the first time I'd actually okay. seen them. No one's going to probably uh, fact check it, so you can pretty much say what you want. <laughs> but the point that he made was everybody thinks that they're going to be out of jobs. But he says if you go back through and you look at any exponential technology, it actually changes the market for jobs. And the kind of jobs people do um, shifts in a really, really important way that actually increases the real purchasing power of your money straight away and then real wages over time as well. So he was he's basically saying everybody's probably got this wrong um and it's so much easier to imagine uh, dystopia and that's why there's so many movies about it than it is to imagine a future where okay so there's going to be some winners and some losers but what do the winners look like it's just harder to imagine that because people don't use their imagination right so i think that was a really cool article to kind of and maybe this is something i can share with you guys but um, i would highly recommend it because i, I kind of came out of it and went that's a really optimistic view um, and it does actually marry up with how things work in history, right? My dad used to be a farmer, and when he started farming, he took a whole family to learn how to get to, to manage the farm, and when he finished farming, he could do it by himself. Same thing. Yeah, bingo, thing. bingo. And I think that's, one, that's a really um, interesting point because without exponential technologies, we actually end up in a, uh, a negative situation as it relates to employment. So you actually, society can actually corrode and start to entropy and go backwards in terms of its economic productive capability unless we have these advances that suddenly allow us to effectively explode our productivity, which creates more jobs, which opens up a pathway for an expanding society. And, you know, there's a great book by um, Peter Diamandis uh, called Abundance, which is just a fantastic look at how 
actually things are not as bad as we think they are. In fact, we're progressively things are getting better and better and better and better and better and better and better, and better. And on almost every measurable metric. It's just that our reference point of available information causes us to focus on, you know, partly because of our, our amygdala is biased on roughly two to three hundred two to three hundred percent biased towards seeking out negative inputs to protect us and keep us safe. We're more biased to see the negative stuff. And also the media is, you know, algorithms and whatever are more biased to, to feed us the things that get our attention, which tend to be the things that are more sensationalist and all of that kind of stuff. So we tend to paint the world with this viewpoint that things are, you know, ostensibly bad. And going back to your point about the um, the tractor though, you know, you guys would be familiar with the four, the four kinds of leverage, capital, labor, code, and media. And it's really interesting because, you know, when we actually look at that example, like every to farm, we used to till the fields. You know, there used to be heaps of people working out there, digging by hand and doing all that kind of stuff. And then um, we actually managed to use capital to be able to expand our labor capabilities. So you start to apply leverage, which actually expands the productive capability. And this is exactly what debt is. It's, you know, it's called leverage, but people don't think about it in the actual truest sense of what that means. It gives you the ability to expand your capability to do so much more. There's a great book called... Um, the Debt Millionaire by George Antone. Have you guys read that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic book. I recommend everyone uh, recommend everyone check out. So, talk to me. Talk to me then about um, how. Actually, let's zoom out a little bit. What do you guys do? How do you guys help people? And I'd love to then tie that into this um, debt conversation as well. You want to take that, Ryan, or do you want me to take it? Go for it, man. Yeah. So, what do we do? Uh, we teach people and train people on the skills and smarts that we probably all should have learnt when we were twelve. 13, 14, 15, all the things that, uh, that I wish um, that my parents or my teachers or somebody sat me down and said, this is money and this is how it works. This is how to work with money to get more of what you want. And I went my whole life, my whole kind of working life, ignoring that and expecting that that's all going to kind of work itself out until I realized no one's going to come and figure that out for me. I've got to figure that out for myself. And on the other side of that, Ryan being a big part of this process, um, it really just kind of stuck out to me that, you know, it's a tragedy, I think. Um, and I just saw an article this morning that Australians read more personal finance books than anyone else in the world, but we're still struggling with financial literacy. So something's not going right there. Um, and for us, we sort of work through and using our backgrounds, myself um, from a coaching background, adult learning, management consulting, teaming up with Ryan with the technical side of money, we wanted to kind of team up and see if we could do money differently, see if we could teach it in a way that actually normal people can understand because the finance industry does a fantastic job of shrouding it in mystery using their big syllable, six-syllable words and acronyms to talk about actually quite simple but profound concepts that can improve your life. I love that. Mm. Why, don't we, why don't we dig into some of that? Because I'd love to know then, like let's start cracking open the can based on what you know, based on the people that you help, based on what you've seen. What are some of the like biggest shifts that we can unlock for people in how to think about money. Because I, I, by the way, I agree with you. In case you can't tell, I really love money, economics, all that kind of stuff. I love getting really nerdy with it. But what I actually really love about it is when you under, start to understand it, you start to understand the elegant simplicity of it. And it's like, oh, okay, this That's thing amazing. does that thing yeah. like that. Huh, sweet. How can you... I think, it's, I think it's the best idea we ever had, honestly. Like, what is it other than the world's greatest social network that you can plug into? Because every transaction is a message from me to you, right? If, if I do business with you, Goose, I'm basically saying I value what you're doing for me more so than the money in my pocket. Now, that's a message. That's an important message. And that's how the world 
got to get along. And the more we started to use money, the more we got along because we could actually trade and we could cooperate. So we didn't have a language, a universal language until we had money. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So aside from it being a universal language, let's, what, what are some of the biggest shifts we can start to crack open for people? Mm. I think one of the biggest uh, mistakes that people do is they separate money from what money gives them, money from life, basically. It's like, this is something on the side that I need to kind of tick away at. You know, it kind of just happens in the background. It kind of gives me freedoms or it doesn't or it limits me. Um, or for many, it's, you know, it's just something that basically stops me from doing what I want when I want. And, um, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges is actually helping people see the role that it needs to play in the life that they're building and attaching a lot of meaning to it. And for us, I know, you know, future pacing, you know, being able to uh, tap into an imagined future state, uh, a future that's worth working towards, and then connecting the role that money needs to play in that and the role that investing plays that in terms of, you know, expanding your purchasing power so you can buy more of it in terms of creating the income so you can live more of it, um, seeing and uh, tightly coupling those together uh, because, you know, we see that money itself is meaningless. It's, you know, wealth isn't about having more money. Wealth is about having more of what you value. And it's how you transfer money into value for yourself that you create that wealth for yourself. And so I see that as one of the biggest issues at the moment where it's like it gets pushed off to the side. I'm trying to live my life and do this thing over here, but money's over there saying yes or no, basically, instead of really tightly coupling those and then, and then just, you know, gamifying the experience, making sure that uh, it's a game that you enjoy playing. So many um, personal finance books, for example, will always teach you to automate money, get it set up on the side so you don't have to think about it. Um, so you tick away with 20% savings rate or something like that, but you lose the ability to enjoy the game that you're playing, which is the life that you're building. And, you know, we love one of the biggest things is like creating incentives and rewards into the way that you're actually making decisions with money and making that so much fun that you just love coming back and stepping into that um, and the confidence and the, you know, the, the empowerment that comes with doing that as well. I love that. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that you said that I want to pull on threads. Sounds like you read a bit of Joe Dispenza, the way you were talking about future, uh, creating, fu- living, stepping into the future memories and all, uh, all of that kind of stuff, painting that vision of the future. Personally, haven't. Terry, you might have. Have you? I haven't, but I actually literally just downloaded a book of his two days ago. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> My, personally, yeah. I find more value in listening to him on podcasts and stuff than I have in his books, but hey, okay. that's just me. Um, but he talks about like crafting that future memory. He, talks about it more in a kind of like manifesting your capability by creating those future memories, which is um, which is super interesting. One of the things that I recognized early on in my life that money is that money is the one commodity on earth that you can always get more of, right? Every other commodity is somehow limited by like supply, whereas money actually is not. And you can always get more of it. And to your point, money in and of itself is meaningless. If you changed the you know if we were in a post-apocalyptic world where everyone was seeking food shelter and all this kind of stuff money would be meaningless like what's money gonna do it's not actually a thing it's a to to your point terry it's a means of communication it's like hey i'd like to transfer some information from you to like let's let's do this kind of thing and i think that plays a uh a really interesting role in Building out a narrative, you've probably heard people talk about escaping the matrix. Now, that's not a terminology that I 
specifically aspire to adopt. But it's an interesting kind of framework because what I tend to see is there are people who have worked out the game of money and there are people who have not worked out the game of money. And the people who have worked out the game of money actually don't really think about money that much and don't care about money that much. Yet they somehow have way more of it and never need to worry about whether or not they're going to have more of it because they've worked out the game. And on the other side of the ledger, you have people who don't realize it is a game and therefore don't understand the rules because they don't even realize it's a game and therefore feel stuck. And they're the kind of people where you know finance dictates the life that they have. It's like I can afford or not afford to do X. So therefore, my life exists in a particular construct within the vector of how much money I currently have in today's format versus the people who have just like transcended beyond like, well, money is just fucking made up anyway and I can have as much of it as I want and, it, you know, there's trillions of dollars floating around in the world. All I've just got to do is if I just want some, I'm just going to go get it and, and the change the, completely changes the construct. Can you talk to that a little bit? Can you talk to that kind of like psychological framework and how people – I'd love to dig into that concept with you. I, I think it's to, – to point out the pattern you just talked to, Goose, and if I look at that – it actually all just comes back to productivity. So the people you know that have worked out the, the money game generally are focused on productivity and making their talents more productive than anything else, doing more of what they're really, really good at, doing it for more people, doing it at a better level. And the money is a byproduct of that process. And so their means continue to expand, whereas uh, the opposite of that is the means, it's like how do I – how do I do the least I like? How do I spend the least I possibly can? Um, and how do I make my life even smaller to increase this margin so I can save more? And for us, we don't focus on a savings rate. We focus on funding life goals. And your wants are actually very productive if you think about it, right? If I have a strong, very big vision, then what that does is it starts to shape my identity in a very different way. If, if I connect to that emotionally, mm -hmm. then it's going to change who I am because I'm going to start to take very different actions. I'm going to move through the challenge that comes with change. I'm going to learn new things along the way. And in doing that, I'm going to create new value. And part of that I'll capture in my efforts and in, in those endeavors. That is what makes the economies that we all live in churn. And so to me, I think the psychology piece of that is when you're getting out of like, what do I want for me to sort of go, I think it's a, I can't remember his name. Um, yeah. I was going to say Dirk Diggler. It's not Dirk Diggler. <laughs> <laughs> um, Financial advice name? from Dirk Zig, Diggler. Zig, Zig Ziggler, not Dirk Diggler. <laughs> um, Dirk, uh, see, that's so funny. Um, Zig Ziggler, he said, uh, the way to get what you want is to help other people get what they want. And if you can do that for more and more people, then you're going to be tapping into an endless sort. Because the, the problem isn't money. You're so, you're so right, Goose. The problem is we've got too much money. It's sloshing so far around the globe that the prices of things are going up. There's so much money everywhere. And um, that's, that's actually why we're seeing inflation. So it's, I think it's just changing your focus and then deciding like, okay, cool. How am I going to actually make the most of who I am? So how do people – so go, you're right. I was going to add to that. Um, you know, I always think about in terms of if there's a, there's a future, folks, there's a, there's a future that you're imagining saying, this is something I want to work towards, then there's a creative power that comes with that. Like Terry mentioned, it tends to shape the identity because you start to go, who do I need to be? What skills do I need to have to be able to attain that? Which is a, is a, is a growth orientation. Whereas if you don't have that strong, you know, imagined future state, 
then you tend to be a reflection of your past. It's your conditioning that basically just sets most of it uh, and sometimes it sets it into stone. And so it's kind of just make sure there's a something in the future that you can orient yourself around so that you're not just a pure reflection of your past conditioning. And I know, you know, having listened to your story too, mate, um, and some of the challenges you've worked through, uh, if, you th- if you think about the role that the future focus, what you thought was possible for yourself, um, how big of a role has that played for you, do you think? It's a really good question. And I'll, t- I'll talk to this for a minute because it's very relevant to this conversation as well, by the way, uh, in a couple of ways. So, you know, not that long ago, I was a, a very different person. And I mean that in every sense. Like I was a very different human being. I had different belief systems. I looked different. I acted in a different way. I, you know, everything about that you would use to form a perspective and of, of an identity, it was a different person. Um, when I made a decision to change, I made a decision to change my identity. Um, and in the first instance, it was to change from someone who, you know, primarily was, you know, it wasn't the, the specific identity, but it was to shift from basically being a, an addict to a non-addict because I had a reason to be, right? And that was my relationship. And in that clarity, I actually then started to go, well, what actually is the purpose? Like, what's the point of all of this? <laughs> and through that, that's when I started to try and that's when I started to think bigger and differently. And I was like, well, hang on a second. Now that I don't have the shroud of, you know, the status quo of the time, which for me was small thinking, closed networks, limiting beliefs, you know, and, you know, lots of drugs and alcohol it was put me in a specific mindset that didn't contemplate the future. Like it didn't. And in fact, if I actually reflect on my 20s, that was almost by design because I had a cup, I, I broke my back when I was 14 and I suddenly realized, hey, Life could end at any moment. So I was kind of like living for today. Like, and that was so my, my, my vector of time was so short that there was no, why would I bother planning for the future? And then when I lifted that shroud and kind of changed my, my mindset and identity on that, I went, well, hang on a second. If I play my cards right, there could be a long, a lot of time here. So what does that look like? And who do I want to be and what's important to me? And then, you know, several, evolutions of identity had to evolve for me to become the person that I am today, which is fundamentally a different human being. And it's really interesting tying this back because um, uh, recently I've been producing more content, um, which has spoke more about my personal story and business and finance and all of these other kind of things. And I've had uh, more people reach out to me from my past life than at any stage before, right? So we've done all this crazy property stuff and it's been awesome, but none of of the people that I used to hang out with, they all think that that's like real estate, that's for grimy, you know, elitist, you know, they're not into it. But then when they could see the transformation, they've also, not all, but there's been a number of people who've reached out and sort of said, "Uh, hang on a second, how do I get from here to there? I need to know, how do I get from here to there? This is really interesting because I don't know how to answer that really, really well. And I'd love to know if you guys have got any specific tools or you've come across, because I want to help as many people as possible. And I've got people that I'm like, well, firstly, you need to work out where you want to go in life. And secondly, you need to realize that you can pretty much have whatever you want within three to five years if you just decide what it is and go after it. And in order to do that, you need to decouple from a whole bunch of limiting beliefs that you currently have. But that's a that's a shitload of stuff to try and wrap your head around if your whole worldview is... T- very small. So what what advice would you give me 
to be able to help those people transgress that journey. Yeah, I think Terry will speak better to this. I'll just add a, add a point in before you do, mate. Um, yeah, we always, you might have heard uh, or read the book Psycho Cybernetics. And, oh, great you know, book, yeah. Cybernetic brain, the ability, the ability for it to be a problem solving machine, but it first needs data points somewhere to anchor upon. And having that imagined future state, it's interesting how trauma and near death experiences can very much get in the way of people allowing themselves to imagine themselves in the future. And I've observed just personally, um, you know, with, with clients we've worked with when there has been, especially in relationships, maybe one partner that goes, there's a future that, you know, I just don't even know if that exists. And so there's this very difficult tension that exists because one is like, I see a future. The other one is like, you know, we could die tomorrow and you make your decisions based off that. And those that have, uh, uh, a smaller time horizon that exists in front of them uh, tends to make decisions that are more, you know, obviously focused on right now and decisions that don't necessarily compound with time. So it's really fascinating to kind of observe yeah, can, I, can I just jump in there? And, and Terry, I promise you'll get a word in in a second. But like, <laughs> I, 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 it's okay. I, I'm loving this, mate. I fucking love this conversation. It's actually a conversation that I've been having a lot with Gabby uh, recently for, for a variety of reasons. And my specific point of view is that you need to have absolutely both. You need to absolutely realize that death is imminent, right? You could, you could, anything could happen. And, and, and also you need to act like you're gonna live forever in a, to a certain, or at least to an old age. And so it's, it's, it's the beauty of impermanence that drives the, the depth of experience that you get to accrete out of life. And if you focus just on one or the other, then you're going to be in the wrong place. But it's this, it's this idea of like, yep, got it. I could, man, firstly, none of this exists anyway. Secondly, it could all stop existing in the context of my personal reality at any moment. It doesn't, you don't have to get sick. I could, I could walk down the street, get hit by a car, bang, done. And also I may live to be a really long age. So how do I optimize my human experience? to accrete the most tremendous amount of value out of this so I don't ever have a uh, a regret. Like if I walk down the street and got hit by a car right now, I'd be like fucking loving it. I killed it. I crushed it. This is so good. Uh, and if I live to 100, I'm going to have the same feeling. Yes, I smoked it. Um, so, Terry, over to you. What do you think about it? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just add to that point before we talk to the transformation question. And, and I want to actually... I almost want, would love to kind of work through your experience through this too in a sec, but um, something that I've been doing, I learned this from Ben Hardy that works unbelievably well, is I uh, I go to the gym sort of three, four days a week and, and I've cultivated this habit where I'm like on the way back from the gym, uh, I am going to pretend that I am, I'm 80 years old and I get to time travel back to my family on this morning to live this moment right now today. And it really works. Like it really, really works. So if I think to myself, imagine I'm 80, but just for right now, I get to go back, drive back into the car, drive back into the driveway and get to open the door and I get to see my five-year-old twins. I get to see my wife. I get to give them a cuddle, get to give them a kiss. And how would I be? What would I do? And um, that is one of the greatest state shifts that I've ever come across. And I read it in a book from from um, Tom Hardy. Uh, sorry, not Tom Hardy. Oh, God. Um, ben Hardy's the guy. And um, 
in terms of like in- enjoying the present, that's been something that really, really helps me. And I think what you're talking about gratitude, to is- right? Like, 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 what about what, the quickest possible way you could get gratitude? Overwhelming sense of gratitude would be that, right? Oh, it's huge because it, it just causes you to value what you have so much right then and there. But then in the context of what you were saying, the shift being then, okay, but now I need to manage the resources I have, which is my time, talent, and money. Now I want to think long-term. Now I want to think real long-term. But if I want to manage and, and make the most of my actual time right now, then it's going to be a shift into some sort of perspective um, shift or frame shift like that that, that helps. Um, but, mate, coming back to your question on you trying to decode your own transformation because we both listened to your story and it was on the Business and Investing podcast. If you haven't actually listened to it and you've been listening to Goose's podcast, go and listen to it because it's it's actually amazing. Um, so I would love to just talk through kind of how I've seen transformation for myself and others just and then kind of if this marries up for you, see what you think um, because I, I made a bit of a study of this and I did it in sport because – when you work in elite sport, your job is to help other people achieve. And I was very, very fortunate to get into elite sport literally straight out of uni. And I thought I had it all made because I, I finished my degree and here I am walking straight into the top level working for you know in the AFL. And I realized in the first six weeks that I was in trouble and that was because I knew how to train people. I knew how to plan. I knew how to program. I knew how to coach and all those kind of things. But I didn't understand the mechanism of achievement. And because of that, achievement wasn't evenly distributed and I was incredibly insecure because I was so young. I was 23 and I was like, they're going to kick me out as soon as they realize that I don't understand this. And so, for me, I was like, I need to understand how achievement works and I've kind of made it almost like a lifelong obsession to go, what is it? And um, and so, for me, I came across and, and it's actually a, a, sol- a framework from Dan Sullivan who I'm sure you've probably heard of and I've kind of built on that because he gave it language, I understood this internally. And then when I came across it, I'm like, that is it. Um, and I think there's actually sort of six parts to it. So I'll kind of walk through it. And I think I would love to kind of go back and go, does this work for you? Like, if you think about your transformation, what do you think? It certainly marries up for me. And it married up for every single athlete that I worked with. And I'm talking the highest performance. Um, is there anything you wanted to say before I jumped in? Look, Loki. Uh no, I've got a question though. Like, I want to hear. I want to hear the. I want to hear the six points because um, I can definitely try and marry them up. But I'm, I'm also trying to think like, what's the big domino? And I, I don't want to hijack what you're what you're what you're trying to get to. Because I and I was just thinking that through because I was like, okay, listen to what you're saying. My experience, the big domino for me though, I just and this is the 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 probably the key point of difference that I'm struggling to understand with other people. The big domino for me is that I realized that if I didn't fundamentally change who I was, I was gonna. Uh, lose my partner. I, I, I would probably end up dead, but it was more specifically I was going to lose. I was going to lose Gabby. That for me was enough. That was like, oh n- no, that's not worth it. That's maybe not everyone has that. And so I'm interested in the six points, but I'm interested in like, what's the first? Well, no, you're right. First, you're you're 100 right. You you actually pointed to it before. You said you made a decision, but before that decision, and I guess that decision is is a, is a function of commitment, and that is the first point. But when you think about commitment, this is the domino, right? You can be interested in building a property portfolio and you can be committed. You've seen the difference. It's very clear, right? So what is the difference? The difference is pain. So humans don't move forward until the pain of staying the same exceeds the pain of change. And so most people are conditioned. We're all told we should never just like stay away from the negative feelings. But if you look back on every big leap that you've ever taken in your life, it starts from a place 
of pain because there's this function in the brain called the avoid approach response. Avoid pain and approach pleasure, right? And if you look at any big, big achievement, like let's talk about Oprah Winfrey, yeah? She gets uh, sexually abused when she's a teenager and she says in interviews, that was the most powerless I ever felt. And then she goes on to become the most powerful woman, woman on the planet almost, right? Think about Michael Jordan, gets rejected from his high school basketball team, goes on to become the greatest athlete that walks the, plan the, the planet. Um, and so it's always away from pain toward pleasure, but it's the pain that allows you to look forward to imagine a different future if you just sit in it for long enough. And because you say, I'm sick of this. I don't want this anymore for myself. I deserve more. I want something completely different. And any athlete that I talk to always had an element of that because that is what pushes you through the next part. Because if you go and pursue anything different, the next part of this whole framework is courage. Like you have to go out, try new things, learn, fail, fall on your face, feel like an idiot. And it's courage that you need to go through that as you learn these things. And, and Ryan talked before about cybernetic brain. Cybernetic brain only learns through negative feedback. It only learns from that didn't quite work, change your approach to something that does. And so if you thwart that because you actually don't have the, you're not committed, um, then you can be interested. I mean, I was interested in personal finance before I got committed to it and I had a shit ton of books, but I just flipped through them and I'd be like, yeah, that's, I want to, it'd be great to learn that. When I got committed, I was obsessed by it. Very different. Does that, does that sort of marry up yeah, for you? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. Um, I think it's super interesting and definitely I can, uh, see some similarities. What I, what I think is interesting about this, the courage one as well is because it's the fear of failure. Right, it's the fear of change. It's the if I walk this path, which is unknown to me, I don't even know what kinds of things could go wrong, and therefore, how can I prepare for them? And therefore, the likelihood of uh, failure is is imminent. I don't even know. What, I can't even measure the risk. One of the most useful tools that I've found to manage risk is to take quitting off the table, because you only and, and I mean, like people might hear that. But not, but not really hear that because you only actually fail. Now, this, there's time and a place to quit stuff. I don't suggest if you're doing something and it's not the right thing, no one to hold them, no one to fold them. Absolutely not a problem. But if you take quitting off the table completely, it is no longer an option. Then specifically by definition, you can never fail. And then if specifically you can never fail, then the natural question to ask yourself is if you knew that you would never fail, what would you do? <laughs> right? Because it's like, oh, well, if I, if I knew I wouldn't fail, oh, well, I mean, I'd do all this kind of weird and wonderful and amazing stuff with my life. And it's like, okay. So all you would discover electricity. That's what you'd do. You'd be Thomas Edison. Yeah, you do all kinds <laughs> of stuff. You know, you might yeah. bloody, you know, trek Mount Everest. You might start a business. You might do one of the things you're most passionate about. And the only thing that is required for you to unlock that like amazing reality where you can never fail is to just fundamentally remove quitting. Just say, well, I don't quit. So, and that it means that you also have to be prepared to experience the pain, right? Because it's like, okay, cool. Well, I mean, however long this takes and however hard it is, I won't quit, which means I won't fail, which means the only possible outcome is success which means that I can do whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's crazy. But that's a big, there's a big shift in there around that courage piece, I think. And for me, it's hard because we, we've got, sorry, Ryan, you go. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, when it comes to that pain, right, it's so easy to think that you need to wait for a big event to happen. I need to wait till I hit rock bottom 
to then rebound, uh, you know, and it's something where you actually need to manufacture that. And, you know, when I think about fear, fear is, fear is a psychic pain that exists for you. It's like the uncertainty of being capable to do what you want or need to do to get what you want. And, um, you know, I know for me, fear in itself, you know, fear around, you know, speaking with clients or, you know, starting a podcast, all of these things is psychic pain that was, for me was like, I need to use that as the thing to move away from by going through it. And so it's like, use that, heighten it at times just to be like, you know what? I don't want to be in a position where I'm nervous to talk to clients. I'm nervous to talk on a podcast or I don't want to make money a project because it feels uncomfortable. Instead, you have to go by not having that figured out. If I push that into the future, how does that play out? Make the pain bigger by yeah, manufacturing. There's also an interesting, there's two, two things in there that I want to pull on. Number one is that people think pain is a negative experience, right? There's this perception that if I feel pain, that is ostensibly in some way bad. It's not that at all. It's just signal, right? There's just a signal that like there's, there's this experience, there's an intensity of experiences happening in this moment. And it could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be psychological pain, but there's this intensity that's happening. And the only difference between anxiety and excitement is perception, right? <laughs> on the one hand, you're like, it's the same physical symptoms. It's the same all the stuff. And on the one hand, you're like, this is bad. And on the other hand, like, oh my God, this is awesome. And it's like, oh, well, hang on a second. What's the difference? Maybe you're, maybe you're anxious because you're about to do something you've never done before, which in the right context or the right mindset would be an amazingly beautiful thing to do. And so I think that people, I don't think people should optimize away from pain. I think people should embrace it, embrace it for what it is, not, not seek it out in a destructive kind of like kind of way, but like em, just embrace that that is actually part of the tapestry. Just listen to it. Yeah, listen to it, experience it, feel it, hear the message. And to your point, Ryan, use it. Okay, cool. This is, I feel, whew, I feel intense right now. Okay, what am I going to do with this? And the other thing I just point out is that like, there's, a, there's another uh, point, where an inflection point in people's belief. The rock bottom thing, sure. There's also the rock top issue, right? And, and this is something that people don't realize because in the kind of psychology of money, people think, right, uh, I know what I'm going to do to be successful. I'm going to go and make all this money and I'm going to stack up all this stuff and I'm going to do all these things that give me the status in my community. I'm going to get a nice car and get a nice house and I'm going to wear a nice suit and go to the right job and do all this kind of stuff. And then they get there, they get to that point and then they realize it was all for nothing. It was worthless. And what's really interesting is I have had plenty of rock bottom stuff I've also had rock top moments where I've suddenly got to a certain point where I can see the top of the mountain from where I am on specific parts of my journey. And I've gone, oh, wh wh why, why, am I, why am I climbing this mountain? Huh. I need to do a values assessment to work out where the hell I'm going because I don't think that that's it anymore. And that's really interesting as well. So you've got these kind of like, really, it comes down to optimizing for like, what do you want, right? And then, then the money conversation just becomes about a facilitation element of that of that vision of your reality in line with your values. Well, you can't optimize until you know what you're optimizing for. And I think a lot of people start trying to optimize, and they optimize just for more instead of a better life. And so, if you don't know what the money's for then you will just chase money. But money isn't wealth and wealth isn't money. Money is just a way to move wealth. 
And so for us, like we spend a lot of time. So these two things we just talked about, we spend a lot of time with our guys on commitment, a lot, um, because we, we will have them sit there with us and we'll be like, no, I'm going to ask you this question. What is this about for you? Why does this matter? What is the cost of you doing nothing? What are you sick of? And what do you really, really want? Because it's so hard to separate yourself from what society wants for you and from what other people think is important. It's very hard thinking and people can't do it for themselves. I've, we don't, I don't do it for myself. I got one of my coaches to do it for me last week. Ryan and I used to do it for each other. Now we get our coaches to do it for us. It's a very hard conversation to have when you actually give yourself permission to say, that is what I want. And I don't care if it's not the same as you or it's not the same as what dad wants for me or whatever. That is what's important to me. And so sometimes people need to be given, give themselves permission and be given permission to just declare it. Mm. And developing that internal scorecard versus the external scorecard. We've been uh, chatting a lot about uh, mimesis, mimetic uh, rivalry and, and how that influences the things that we want, how we catch our wants from other people. Um, through the observation of others, is that something I want? Is that someone what, that I want to be more that? like? Mimesis, mimetic desire, mimetic desire, mimetic desire. Yes. Mm. So this is the. Oh, you love this goose. You haven't even come across oh, this. What the hell's mimetic desire? <laughs> you go right. You we just found your next it. rabbit hole, mate. For yeah, sure. I know. Yeah, this yeah, is great. Yeah, um, yeah, critical yeah. one. And basically, just a really high level. It's you know, it's the recognition that oh, there's a body of work that exists around and philosophy around. The fact that we don't necessarily develop our wants internally, but we catch them from others. And so it's through the observation of others and specific people that we want to be more like that we see what they want and we go after those things. Um, but with time, we develop an internal, scar- uh, score- an internal scorecard, which is essentially what we value through the experimentation of what we've seen others value. And it's kind of the stripping away the signal from the noise uh, because it's so easy to have those external points of reference to say, and this is how most people measure progress financially. It's like, how am I going against the people my age? How am I going against my mates from school? How am I tracking against, or, you know, am I at where I should be at this age? And all of these are external reference points looking outside to compare what's working for where we're at. Um, and the shift and a big shift that we make sure that we help our, our guys make is, you want to have one eye on the future you're working towards, but then most of folks have mostly attention on the progress you've already made. And so it's all about uh, celebrating the wins that you've done, showing yourself that you are capable of change and the things you've already achieved so far and using that to feed because progress is the most potent motivator that we have to see that what we're doing is working and measuring it based off an internal point of reference as well. Love that. Yeah. Comparison is the thief of joy. Mimetic desire is so funny, by the way, because, uh, you know, I won't segue, but actually that's just a very specific thing that Gabby and I have been talking about recently around like, why is Changu popular? Because ostensibly it's like, it's cool and I like being here, but like the beaches are dirty and, you know, there's like lots of traffic and it's like, so why does everyone like being here? And I'm like, it's got something to do with the zeitgeist, you know, like people develop a belief because they see other people doing this thing and then all of a sudden it builds up this. So... But going back to the points of reference, right? And this is fundamental to the transformation question that that we were hanging off a, a, a little moment ago. I think about how that impacted my specific journey because what I had to seek was evidence that 
the things that I desired could be true or perhaps that I was okay where I was. So, you know, a very simple one is like Colonel Sanders was like whatever he was, 80 years old or something when he even came up with um, KFC and then he got rejected a thousand times or whatever it was before anyone even licensed the thing from, you know, like, oh, okay, he was he was old and really unsuccessful. Okay, well, maybe I'm okay at 30 years old, you know, when I, when I kind of started this journey. And thank God he figured that out because <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, Ryan should own shares in KFC, I reckon. <laughs> I just built my new home, mate. It's a damn trap. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. But it's like like developing those points of reference, right? So because I, f- I think that the anchoring is actually really, really useful because it's like there's a big step from I'm in this current state. Firstly, there's the identification. There's the, hang on a second, the construct that I'm in financially and emotionally and everything like that is of my own making and it doesn't have to be that way. There's the identification of the cage. Like that's the first kind of step. It's like, oh, hang on a second. I'm in this thing and I don't need to be in this thing. Then there's the, then there's the okay, well, I'm going to get out of this thing into, into another state of existing. Then there's the fear, <laughs> right? There's the, I'm going to fucking die. And then the only way that you can get over that is to build a body of evidence to suggest that that internal uh, fear is unfounded. It's like, well, maybe, uh, maybe I'm not going to die because I can see there's this person that's done this, and so there's a degree to which you know, mimetic uh, referencing of people in that context, you know, mimicking can actually be super useful. It's social gravity. We talk. We actually did an episode recently where we said, "Look, here's how it's destructive, and here's how to make it constructive." And we made that exact point. There's a. There's actually a really, really interesting research on curing people of snake phobia, and doing it their whole lives, devastated by snake phobia, curing it in two hours, purely by watching people like them that they identify with, at all different levels, go through just like touch, like look, look at, um, look at a snake, touch the cabinet put the hand in the cabinet, pick it up, play with it. And they're like, they're just like me. And I'm watching hundreds of people just like me do that thing. What is it about me that I can't figure it out? And so then they give them the chance to go through the same steps. They do it. They cure it in two hours. Um, So you're right. Yeah. So Um, what tools- not negative, yeah. Yeah, what tools can we give people to help develop the point of reference though? Because I feel like what we are starting to do is we're starting to just gradually tease out this pathway that people listen to this might be able to- follow so like how can people transgress that step or is there a way that you would advise people to do that we did a lot of thinking on this and we talk about like a bit of a philosophy time over money experiences over things connections over transactions and mastery over mediocrity if you spend money in those ways pointed towards the more of this less of that um, you will build a life of meaning which will make your money more meaningful and so you'll feel better about your money on that way so we take people through this process we facilitate what would your ideal day look like? Walk me through it from 7 a.m. What's the first thing you do? And who's around you? Is your house clean? Is it clean? Is it clean by cleaners? What, what's going on? To the level of depth where you have to be able to see it in your mind's eye. You have to be able to see it. And so that's, that requires asking very specific follow-on questions. So how would you know that you own your day? What would that look like? Does that mean that you get up and you don't have a plan? Do you own your calendar? What, what, what's, what's true? Um, and living in that state and dragging people into that future so that they can articulate it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting, uh, isn't it? Because people think they want money, but what they actually want is what money can provide for them. And it's not about like no one, no one wants a million dollars in the bank. Like 
what they want is what they want, what they believe that that will unlock for them more time, the ability to do these other things, but they haven't clearly defined it. So it's a very interesting idea that that it's actually not the money. <laughs> the money's got almost almost nothing to do with it. It's these other outcomes. And if you actually optimize towards the outcomes, you may find that the money side of things is, you know, really not as deeply correlated as as you once thought. I, I do this kind of exercise with people all the time. I'm like, you know, just a very simplistic uh, way, just because I'm mindful of time. But I'll ask people like, so what what is it you want? What if you if you could remove all the current constraints in your life? Like, what would you what would you do? Roughly, of all the people I've asked, roughly 90% of people say I'd travel. Roughly 10% of people say I'd love to move to the country and grow vegetables. It's so weird that it's pretty much they're the two categories that I've discovered with some minor variations. Definitely marries up with us too. It's, it's crazy. And then I'm like, the next question I've got is like, well, why don't you just go do it? And there's, there's genuinely like some people may have some uh, limitations or uh, whatever, but broadly speaking, most people don't. Like broadly speaking, it's all up here. Like, oh, uh, my kids go to school at this school. It's like, well, could they go to school at a different school? Like, <laughs> you know, like, or, oh, I've got the bingo. Like my, my auntie and uncle, I, I was like talking to them. Why don't they travel more? And they've got the, their bingo club. And I'm like, well, that's great. But like, you know, like, could you play bingo somewhere else? You know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yeah, it's super interesting to decouple the, the outcome from the, from the method, I think, as well. And I think also feel the outcome. So a big part of that ride is actually stepping into that place and then asking yourself what that does for you because we're emotional beings. We actually make decisions basically based off, like we said, avoiding pain, making ourselves feel good. And it's what the outcomes give us, uh, you know, at that next layer ultimately that orients our decisions. And when you do step into that imagined future state and you feel it, your emotion, you know, your, your nervous system says, I want to wire you in a way that makes sure it's that you get towards that and you get to feel more of that. And, you know, 10% of our decisions happen at this conscious level, which is us sitting down, writing it down, making decisions, working with others. 90% of our decisions is us wayfinding our way through. We're hitting all these forks in the road and we're course correcting based off a feeling. There's a gut instinct that's directing the play. And it's how you kind of fine tune that nervous system to make sure the gut instincts pointing in the right direction essentially and so it's always kind of stepping even that little bit further than the outcomes um and you know you asked that question before like how do you get people to have that transformation um that's that's ultimately the question we've been asking ourselves and working on for you know last four years um and we've definitely found that that step is so pivotal can't skip it in feeling it seeing it feeling it Mm. But then also the away from part, which is heightening the pain of non-change, essentially. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really interesting because you guys were asking about my journey. And one of the, I've been pretty vocal about this as well. Probably there's a bunch of things that I've done to get from where I was to where I am now. But one of the biggest, most impactful things that I've done the most consistently that's delivered the probably the greatest asymmetrical rewards and results and has dictated almost everything that's happened has been vision. So I sit down um, basically every day and write, write out my vision. Now, back in back when we started Dashdot, that was a huge transformational time. It was like new identity, new career, new business. It was like, oh, my God. It, like I felt myself melting my identity just like peeling away every day. It was insane. It was like, it was really hectic. 
every day I'd write out like my vision of the future. Now, the thing is that changes, right? Because I had no idea what I wanted. So I was like Ferraris and whatever. And I'm like, I mean, I've got no interest in a Ferrari, right? Like none. But like at the time it was useful. Like it was like, okay, I know where I'm going. I'm going to make this much money. I, I live here and it's all, it's all present tense type journaling. But I do it every single day because I had to reprogram my mind for where I was going so that I'd know what it was all about. And it was that process of continuous reprogramming. Now, the things I write down today are vastly different to the things I wrote down four or five years ago when I was uh, starting on this journey. But the vision piece, like that crafting the vision of the future in to, to the degree that you believe that it is true so that it is no longer a story. It's something that you, fe- it's something that you know. Uh, and it, when you get to a place when you know it, when it becomes a, a known fact, not some ambitious dream that you might have. And if I could one day achieve this, I would feel great. It's like when you get to the point where you already know that it is true, that is the thing, that is the point that things start to appear. <laughs> you know, you suddenly start arriving at all these like crazy places and you're like, oh shit, huh, that's pretty quick. And, uh, and I, so I agree with you. Like if you can get people to create these like, tr- tr- transition it's a big identity breakdown it's like it's a reality breakdown it's it's really re rewriting your fundamental personal thesis on on reality which sounds like a pretty hectic first step to try and manage your money it's really hectic (laughs) but it's uh you know when we ask people at the end of our program what's the one thing we should never take out the thing they always say never take that first session out um because Without the first session, the juice has to be worth the squeeze, right? It has to be worth it for you to go through the the next parts, which is like you building the systems, the structures, the skills, the habits that you need to learn to be able to make those things happen. So, you know, we talk about commitment, courage. It's capability that happens after that. Then you become confident because you're now capable. And then once you're confident, this is what I figured out. If I can get you to confidence as quick as possible, then consistency happens and compounding is a result of that. Because once you're consistent, game over. I don't need to motivate you. You're done. You are good. And so for us, it's how do we move people? How do we walk people through that kind of messy middle part as quick as possible to make it um, more more possible? So a lot of it is around social, the community. Like, what are people doing? Like, have a look around you. That's, that's that person's just like you. She just retired last year. Um, those are the kind of things that really really help to break beliefs and build new ones as well. So we. It's such a social thing, but it's also a very personal journey as well. Yet, consistency plus time equals whatever you want. Basically, is is the is the maths. As long as you just keep going, and you know, take positive actions, not just the same repetitive stuff. Like you get, like, like, what, like you what can't you, you can't be, be bad forever. Like you're going to learn. Yeah. You're going to get better. Yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> it. And that, all of those stack up. So it's just like just. If you're just able to be consistent enough for a long enough period of time, anything that anything that you're after, just be you, you'll get it. Do you want a billion? It's really interesting, and I know we're way over time, and we're going to wrap it up in a second. But um, I was listening to a, a an interview with um, specifically relevant to this point with Sam Parr, who founded a newsletter called The Hustle. Now, The Hustle uh, was an email newsletter, and it sold for you know several. Uh, m- like 10, 20, 30 million dollars, something like that, right? He sold it. There was another company that started a newsletter right about the same time and they were rivals. This other company was called The Morning Brew. Now, Sam Parr sold the hustle for an undisclosed sum, but it was something around the sort of 20 million ish mark. Um, and he did all right for himself. The peers 
uh, Morning Brew, they kept going to the point that they sold a, f- a portion of it for $75 million, and it's now doing like $150 million in revenue just just a couple of years later, like not not a decade later, like like three years later or something. Like, and I was listening to this interview with Sam Parr and he's like, it's really, that goes literally like we were exactly at the same place. I stopped, they kept going. That's what happens if you keep going. Like it's like, oh, wow, that's that's awesome. <laughs> that's compounding. It's not linear. It's compound and it's exponent. It does hit inflection points and we've seen it. Like it's crazy what, what some people can do, um, particularly when that vision's super, super clear because you start to realize if I just reconfigure things, here's the way my money life said it, so, sorted out. If we could just reconfigure it to, to make A, B and C true, then all the decisions that we talked about and all the opportunities and choices that we wanted in the life that we designed, they're actually available now. So why aren't we doing that? You know, to your point, why don't you just go do it? I think if people just don't get to that point of capability where they start to have the awareness of like how how will actually make that happen, this is where the logic comes in. This is where the problem solving, the cybernetic brain is all kind of calibrated around, well, how do I solve that puzzle that I created, that big picture? How's that going to work? You don't have to, have, to, have to figure that out on day one, but you will figure it out over time if you're consistent. That's a good mental mistake to call out. That is... For most human beings, we draw, we draw a straight line out into the future and that straight line is a, a, it tends to be a picture of falling short. And so there's this disheartening feeling that comes with it. It's like, why even bother? And so you don't even get to the confidence part of that, you know, that, those stages, if you like, um, because you've already written yourself out of the game. Um, and so it's a mental mistake that we make time and time again. And the great thing about investing is you learn about compounding and every investment, investing in yourself, investing in your business, investing in other people's business, in property, uh, it's an exponential line that draws into the future. There's a compounding line. And so it's only through experiencing that first, though, that you can believe it. Um, and so this mental mistake, great thing about podcasts, things like this is you try to help uh, collapse the time to have that insight, that realisation, try to share that um, so that you can borrow from the future, either your future or someone else's path further along into that future to be able to borrow that, to make yourself take the action now so that you have the time to let it compound. Can I ask you one question? Yeah, you can ask me anything you like. So, (laughs) amazing. Um, So, we've been talking about like where people get stuck here, right? The courage part and and you talked about how like when you, you, you create this big vision, you're changing your identity. I think- the brain conflates certainty with safety, and when you're pushing towards the unknown, your brain is going unsafe, okay? And so you're letting go of all this who you were. How did you work your way through that? Because I think this is what stops people. Uh, the answer is probably not going to be the answer that people want to hear, but you've got to be prepared to die. <laughs> no, I, me- <laughs> yep. I, I, I mean it. No, and I actually mean it. Now, I will speak the truth that is the truth for me, right? And that's that's – so – I believe that you need to be prepared to cast yourself into the abyss spiritually, emotionally, like in all ways. And that necessarily means that you must be prepared to die. You need to die to be from one identity to become another one. Now, I'm not advocating um, drugs and stuff, but the same thing happens if you take a very high dose of psychedelics, you experience what's called ego death. But ego death only happens at a specific moment when you actually have to let go and you need and you need to actually be able to mentally say, okay, 
I'm gonna, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'll let go. I'm, I'm prepared to die. And that is when ego death happens. And that's a way that you can experience that. But the same thing goes with identity shift. You have to be, you have to have the ability to say, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Like I'm, I'm ready to burn everything to the ground to start anew. And I don't mean that you need to go and self-destruct anything, but you need to, you need to have the fortitude to do that. And I think it's only through the the willingness to do it that the change can happen. Yeah, it's, I think it's it's the one I'm fascinated with at the moment. I think a lot of it comes with social pain. Your brain doesn't really distinguish between social pain and, and real pain. And because it is, I mean, I had the same identity death, right? Moving, coming out of sport, being the sport guy. And you have people that are looking at you going, what do you want about, mate? What are you talking about this for now? And so there's this whole sort of social sort of challenge that comes with change and that you need to be able to move through because you're letting go of who and what you know, but you are also connecting with other new people that are coming into your world as well at the same time. And I think if you just fixate on what you're losing, you actually miss what you're gaining through that period of time. I think there's there's an element of curiosity, right? Because like the more curious you are, the more prepared you're, you are to, to, to try. So my... Um, my ideal way to die, if I could choose, would be to um, go into a black hole. That would be my ideal way, right? Right? Because I'd be like, because I'm like, I want to know what happens on the event horizon. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I want to experience what it's like to have gravity pull me apart whilst my soul and consciousness experiences it. It's like, which sounds crazy, right? But like, fundamentally, I'm like, that's man, that'd be a way to go. Like, you might just time travel and just go back to the start and do it all again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. It might be the clue. <laughs> Totally, but like that that idea, right, of passing through an event horizon, right, to be what's on the other side, like that holds true in this context. It's like if you're stuck in a mental frame where you're trapped in limiting beliefs and all of that kind of stuff, you need to you need to be get prepared to jump into a black hole to go. Okay, I'm gonna go. I'm going over the event horizon. Come hell or high water. There's either something on the other side or there's nothing on the other side, but I'm going through because I'm going to have a look, right? And that that that's a that's a pretty healthy dose of curiosity to want to go through that, you know. So, <laughs> anyway. yeah, it's a good point. I like that. <laughs> Be curious all the way through. Nice. All right. Anyway, guys, uh, it's so funny. We, we didn't get to talk about money. We didn't talk about money as much as I thought we would talk about money. Put put it that way. But I love where we took the conversation. I've really um, this has been one of my favorite podcasts in some time. So thanks, I appreciate it. Pleasure, mate. Thank, uh, thank you, mate. Um, if people want to get in touch, if they want to reach out to you guys, if they want to go on this journey with you and kind of learn more about what you guys do, where do they go? Yeah, so they can jump across to the website, cashflowco.com.au. Um, if they want to go quite specific, but we have our podcast, The Passive Income Project, which is uh, on all platforms as well. And uh, no doubt, mate, we'll get you on ASAP as well. We need to bring you across and we'll, we'll make a part two of this. Yeah. Well, I was obviously I'm going to have to get you guys back on because we had a whole list of things that we were going to talk about. Pretty sure we didn't really talk about any of them. So I'm like, <laughs> hang on. A I was already thinking. I'm like, are we going to have to do like a podcast every four weeks or something just to try and get through all the stuff we we're trying to talk about? So. Well, we saw the run sheet and we were like, no chance, no chance. We listened to we listened to a few of your episodes. We're like, that's not happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but for sure, mate. We'd love to continue the conversation. Um, but yeah, on the podcast. Um, yeah, the website is mentioned. Um, and yeah, that's probably any other ones you'd think of, Terry? Instagram, the Cashflow Co. Yep. 
Did you say that? No. Good. Go find you. Cashflowco.com. Dot au. Dot au. Perfect. Yeah. Um, we'll start out from there. We'll put some links in the show notes. Terry, Ryan, awesome conversation. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks, mate. Legend. Thanks, mate.